Today's episode is brought to you by the Frankenmuth Convention and Visitors Bureau. Come plan your vacation at frankenmuth.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast, where we hear stories and advice from leaders in our Michigan community so we can be better leaders for ourselves, our families, and in our communities. I am your host, Cliff Duvenois, and today I have the privilege of sitting down with the gentleman who's in charge of probably one of the biggest businesses in the Frankenmuth area that you really don't think about. This is the non-tourist business of Frankenmuth that has had such an impact on the local history and the local community. Today, I have the honor and the privilege of speaking with Jim Howe, the president of Star of the West Milling Company. Jim, how are you? I'm fine. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so, for asking. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? I actually grew up in the greater Saginaw area, Saginaw County, in the Hemlock St. Charles area on a farm where my father's still farming. So found my way to Frankenmuth via Michigan State University after working on an ag, ag degree and ended up at Star of the West. Now, why did you decide to go into agriculture? Well, my, my family are longtime farmers, and it was just second nature to be in the farm. I had, had aspirations of staying on the farm, but when I got out of college in the 80s, interest rates were high, farm prices were low, and, and it just was a tough time to be in agriculture farming. So I found myself at Star of the West with the idea of working a couple of years, and a couple of years has turned to almost 40. So, Which is quite an accomplishment. Why did you decide to take an internship? I'm sorry, let me try that again. Why did you decide to take an internship here at the Star of the West? So I was extended the internship. I didn't quite honestly, I'm on the other side of the county, but I didn't hardly know how to get to Frankenmuth, which is you had this natural barrier called the Shiley Game Reserve <laughs> that separates my where I grew up in, in Frankenmuth. But so I came over and did an interview with, with Richard Kraft, Dick Kraft, and it was an interesting. I knew about the community a little bit, and I just thought it'd be a, a great opportunity to, to spend at least my first job in a kind of a tourist town in, a, in an old established business. Excellent. And I, and I do really want to go back and explore the, the old established business aspect of it. You mentioned before that you came here under an internship and you've been here now for 40 years. What is it about the company that, that you decided, you know what, I'm just going to hang my hat here and keep right on plugging away? It really came down. It was a, it's a culture. It's a family-based culture. The company's been here in Frankmouth. It started here in 1870 as a, as a flour milling company. When I came on with the company, there were three and almost four locations. We were in the process of buying a new location. And we've added several locations sub- subsequently since. So it was an opportunity to me to grow with an organization. And, and that's, I guess that's what the lure was. The people were awesome, and, and it was just a great community and still is a great community. I know that culture is really important when it comes to businesses. Is there some aspect of the culture that really drew you here? It, it really came back, as mentioned, the people. Of course, Dick Kraft, and then he, he was my original mentor. And then following on uh, Dick's heels was Art Leffler, and I worked for Art. Art was here as our controller when I started. And then Art assumed the president and CEO of the company in 1997 on Dick's retirement. And Art was just a great guy to work for as well. And he allowed me to expand my career, if you will, and in take on new challenges that and that's what the that's what excited me and kept me going so so I had multiple jobs from driving truck 
to being an agronomist, which an agronomist is out looking at fields, and that was part of my background at Michigan State was, I mean, I had, had a pretty good background in wheat, so looking for diseases and pests and how to how to grow better crops. And then I was able to move into a managerial role and to the role I'm in today, where I've been since 1st of April of uh, 2018. So it sounds like you've actually done a lot of jobs here at the start of the West Milling Company. Yeah, I, I I've literally worked in every aspect of the company, from in the mills to when we had feed mills, the plant food area, working with farmers. I had a long history of working with the local growers and from here to the Thumb of Michigan, and which was very enjoyable to spend time out with farmers and helping them to be more more profitable on their farms. That was always the the, the exciting part to help them improve their farms. What impact do you think working all the jobs and learning every aspect of the business has helped you with regards to being now the, the in charge, the president? It's, to a certain degree, it's much like I grew up on the farm. Every job had to get done. There was not one job that was more important than the other because every job was contingent to get job or to get done. And in the role I have today, I can ask an employee to do anything that I haven't already done myself. There's, there's no bad jobs here. And I've I've had an experience from anything from washing trucks to changing oil to driving trucks to actually packed flour and bagged beans and did sales roles and blood and fertilizer and and managed people. So it's been, when I look back, it's been a pretty exciting, fun, lot of hours, but uh, fun career. So never was work. Wow, that's interesting. That's something I, I don't hear enough of is that it doesn't feel like work. Let's go back and explore something you mentioned before, and I do really want to spend some time on this. Let's talk about the history of the Star of the West. So, so when was the when was the company initially founded? Who founded the company? So, if you Frankenmuth was established in 1845, there were 15 German settlers came over missionaries, and they started the fledgling community. And then in 1848, the Frankenmuth milling company was established, which was very common in every small town across the country. And that was located on the banks of the Cass River and powered by water. It was owned by the Hubinger family that they were multi-generational flour millers. They came over and then there were two sons and they're both Johan or John. There was John Matthew and John George. And so they, they started the company in 1870 on the other end of town, and that was considered high-tech in 1870 because the, the mill didn't no longer was required to run on water but on steam. So there was a big boiler and big piles of wood. They would put up this boiler, and that's how they operated the mill. And it was no longer a stone mill. It was a roller mill using steel instead of stone to, to mill and manufacture flour. Excellent. And and if I I was reading on the history of the website that they, they, they started with $3,000? Yeah, they which was a lot of money accordingly at the time, but the, the name itself is somewhat unique as well. And people say Star of the West, and, and we do business around the globe. I started a business in Japan selling export food-grade soybeans there. So when they hear Star of the West, they think coming from the U.S., that's very, very fitting and appropriate. But when you talk to somebody in Nevada or California, they say, what gives you the right to call yourself Star of the West? You know, being in, you're not in the West. When you're not, how dare you, right? So, but, so it's, in 1861, there was a vessel, it was a merchant vessel, that would go from New York to Louisiana, New Orleans. And they would ship, would haul uh, merchandise back and forth. Well, then in January of 1861, the, 
we had things were heating up in the between the north and the south, and the Union Army had used this vessel to move soldiers into the south. Well, then the the Confederate Army found out about this vessel, at, and so they fired on this vessel in January 9th, 1861, and that became the the beginning of the U.S. Civil War. But the name of that merchant vessel was Star of the West, and the 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 thought was the Hubinger family, when they started the new company, right on the heels of, of the end of the Civil War, they just had a, a sense of patriotism or they just liked the sound of that boat. So, so that's where we got the name. Interesting. With the, with the, the Harbinger? Sure. Hubinger. With the Hubinger family. And they owned this for a number of years. And if, if my memory serves, at some point in time, this was bought by a cooperative? Of farmers? Well, in, in 1905, there were 50 farmers from the area. The Hubinger family opted to sell them the, the company to 50 farmers, and it was a partnership. And it was maintained as a partnership until 1929 when the company was incorporated as an incorporated company. So up until that point, all of the minutes had been uh, written in German, but because they were now, it was a a U.S. Michigan corporation, it, the minutes had to be kept in English. So we started keeping the minutes then in English from then till today. Oh, that is so wild. Do you still have those German minutes we, in an archive somewhere? Yeah, we, we actually do. And we have, a, we have a safe or vault with all the statements. And I don't have the ability to read them, but, but Dick Kraft, uh, who was here, he certainly did. And he would, during the last recession, when we were looking at statements, we had a lot of growth from the last 10 or 12 years, and what can you learn about history? So we've, we had excerpts. We had financial statements from the Depression that we could fall on and say, what did we do then? What did we learn from that? And he was able to convert that from, from German to English, and it served us well having that history to back on. So, Oh, I didn't even think about that aspect of it. Is this something that, oh, wow, I don't even know how to ask that question. What is it like to be able to look at these pages that were written from oh so long ago and be able to learn the lessons? Because they always say if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. But it almost seems like you have a 100-year-old playbook that you can go back and take a look at it and say, you know, when times were good, this is what they did. When times were bad, this is what they did, and they survived. So let's use this as a starting point. You know, you're exactly right, and, and that's, it's been great to have that resource now, this is our 150th anniversary year, which is, which is a milestone for a lot of companies. Very few, I, I think the numbers are less than a quarter percent in the U.S. ever make it this far. So, so we're very proud of that. We, we had a lot of celebrations planned that we've now had to push on to, to next year because of COVID, and that's a reoccurring theme for a lot of us. But, but having that history, and we, we also had many, many bins full of old pictures that we were able to sort out and look. And so I've kind of refreshed my memory and we're able to call on some of the folks that were here much longer ago than myself to look at this history. It's, it's horse-drawn wagons in front of the organization. That One of the interesting, our, most flower companies have a brand. We don't do much retail flower, although lately we've been selling more retail. But the name of our flower here is called Nightingale Flower. So, I've seen it. So one of our local community folks said so where does the name nightingale comes from and i you know as long as i've been here i'd never really heard that but i i was able to call on mr Kraft, and, and i said so where does there are no nightingales in michigan 
either it's not, it's a bird. And, but, so he called on him. I said, so, so where did we get the name? How did that come to be? And it was named after Florence Nightingale, which was, she was never in Frankmuth, but she was a, she started modern nursing and she was influential to Clara Barton, who nursed back all these Union soldiers back in the U.S. Civil War. So we have all these Civil War ties in our in our own company history. The name of the company, the name of the flower. So it's it's just interesting to me because I again I'm I like history anyway. But so so when you can look at these pictures chronological from virtually when we started to now and you can see the progression from horses to old trucks to the semi trucks we have today and of course the technologies have changed within our milling as well and food safety has changed immensely and but the culture is still from when I started is still very much in play like the couch the company I started with and that's we still appreciate our family we, we appreciate our employees and the community we serve and we like to be part of the community we serve so we're not in the tourism business, but we want to be responsible because we know there are tourists here. We want to keep our properties clean and presentable, and and we're sort of behind the scenes, but we don't want to become uh, an eyesore of the scenes, if you will. So Certainly. And I, I know you referenced this before when you talked about changes. The original mill, you were talking about how it was powered with steam. Mm. The first one was water. Oh, okay. First and, one was water. And then steam, and then electricity. If you can, driving, diving back into the, the historical archives, is these kind of changes, because this is pretty big, going from water to steam to electricity, it's, it's a big capital investment to do. And is it, is it something that, from your, from your knowledge of history of the Star of the West, is it something that the owners were quick to embrace? It, it would appear they were, you know, going back to, and I think it was all about efficiencies when you look at capacities, and that, that really hasn't changed in 150 years, if you survive in business, you need to have efficiencies. And in the early 1900s, there were 600, approximately 600 flour mills in the state of Michigan. And and they were mostly stuck, scattered along the, the waterways, the rivers to drive those. And But then then you had to get close to, for transportation reasons. As we, as we went away from horses, we had to have be closer to truck routes and rail routes and so that moved because they were not always next to the rivers so so th- those things have changed as well and that would explain why through a lot of towns when i'm driving through michigan i'll see these just giant silos yes that are there yeah and the, you you can you can almost find these grain complexes just follow the, a rail map and you'll find them they're strategically there because of that Today's episode is brought to you by the Frankenmuth Convention and Visitors Bureau. German architecture, chicken dinners, and the world's largest Christmas store are just the beginning. Frankenmuth is quickly becoming known for so much more than chicken and Christmas. From trendy dining to timeless horse-drawn carriage rides, kayaking to adventure parks, ballparks, water parks, regular parks, sweet Moses, there's a lot to do in one trip to Frankenmuth. Visit the must-sees of Little Bavaria, then grab your crew and find something new waiting to be discovered. Pack a picnic blanket, order takeout from your favorite place, and let your kids delight in exploring while soaking up the little moments in life. Join the generations of families in our hotels during the 175th anniversary season in 2020. The perfect road trip awaits you. Start planning your unforgettable family vacation at frankenmuth.org. Now, back to the show. Excellent. With the, and I know we, we, we've talked about 
uh, a co-op ownership of uh, Star of the West. What does the history look like from that point going forward to where it is today? How did how did the how did the company come to to evolve as to what we know it today? So it was it was never really a cooperative. It was a partnership. Partnership. And there's a, a distinct difference between the way they're set up. But so there are 50 local farmers that band together and purchased it because that was the place where they got their animal feed. They also delivered their corn, their oats, uh, soybeans were quite. Actually, that era non-existent in Michigan. We got in the dry edible bean business in 1949, which is like the navy bean and the black turtle bean that would be in pork and beans. Fourth of July is coming up. That's a big outdoor. People are familiar, and of course, pinto beans. So we're 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 quite enriched as well in the the bean business. We have processing in in Gara, Michigan, and Reese, Michigan, and and we have places in Minnesota, North Dakota that handle dry beans. Munger, Michigan. And we ship those literally in just about every continent in the world. So Africa, Europe, South America, New Zealand. That's pretty impressive. Along with the global reach, at the same point in time, the start of the West has been growing. Yeah, we we've been we've been have a slow, steady growth curve. We're still we still model our conservative nature that our forefathers had and adhered to the German culture that was very conservative and making sure that we were spending dollars appropriately and, and saving money for rainy days. So those are probably the lessons that we learned from our history that, that there's times when you need to expand and there's other times you need to just stay steady and, and, and keep some money in the bank for because it could be a rough time. And agriculture is certainly very cyclical and, and we follow the the agricultural cycles are generally different than the, the rest of the, the nation. During the recession, when a lot of our friends in the auto industry were suffering and the building industry were suffering, we were very busy. And during, during the recent COVID, uh, when places were shuttered, we were still deemed by the government essential. So we were very still busy trying to keep cereal, uh, flour for cereal companies and keeping the food on the store shelves and pantries full for for the folks so and that one i can attest to because i can't even begin to tell you the number of times that i went out shopping and trying to find bread flour was impossible like the shelves had been picked clean i never saw that before you know i i can't say that i have either other than talking to my parents about world war ii and they couldn't find sugar and they couldn't find this and couldn't buy tires and that was probably as close as i could recall to that but but yeah, I've never, you know, the, the consumer has shifted over time from more home cooking to the restaurant, and they were literally pushed back into their homes. So they were looking for things like beans and, and cake mixes and cereal when the kids were not going to school. Recent years, cereal had been a bit on the decline because today's moms, they're trying to get more foods into breakfast fires to get the kids off to school. And now, because pouring a bowl of cereal takes a little time and as simple as that seems to someone from my era but young families are busy so they don't have the time so now they've they're they were at a time finding themselves at home and and cereals become popular again because it's easy and it's nutritious and and such so so those everyday store items that you don't you, you don't think about are most of them came out of a place like this at one point sure sure I do want to go back and, and I, I, I do want to go back and talk a little bit more about uh, the impact that you're having on the cereal market. 
let's take a little trip back. So we're right now, as we're recording this interview, we're sitting in your office. You have this absolutely gorgeous view of the Cass River. It looks phenomenal. If memory serves, this property was once owned by the Bronner family. Our office was originally constructed by Wally Brunner. Him and his wife, Irene, built it in, in the 50s. And they expanded on it multiple times until they got to a point where traffic and parking were a problem. So they sold their buildings and property to Star of the West. And we moved from a small office on the side street to this office where we've been since. And then they really relocated on the south end of town to where Brunner's Christmas Wonderland is today. And that was, what What year was that? 1980, okay. 79, 80. And I, I came in 1981, so that that move had occurred when I got here. But but I still have seen the, well, if, if you see the pictures from that time, you can see how our office looks very similar. But we're just finishing a, a, a remodeling of a area that used to be a workshop. And at one time it was Wally's paint booth for painting large Santa and nativity scenes and He'd get local artisans in to, to paint fiberglass and figures and such. and So now it's office space. So. For our audience that may not be really familiar with Frankenmuth, this would be on the corner of Maine and Tuscola. Correct. Which is where the original Bronners used to be located prior to moving to the south end of town. Correct. Well, that still blows my mind. That still blows my mind. So now that you have been here, the 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 modern day Star of the West company, and, and I heard this statistic. It might be rumor. It could be something somebody was just chatting about over lunch, but I had heard that the grain that you keep here mm-hmm. within two weeks is going to be in a cereal box. That'd be true. That is true. Yeah. How much grain do you have coming through here? Well, you know, in terms of bushels. So in, in Frankenmuth, we we only do wheat in this location. At one time, we handled multiple grains. But then we have outlawing elevators throughout Michigan grain elevators where we take corn, wheat, and soybeans. And we we purchase, there, there's, you mentioned bread flour, and I won't get into a lot of those, but bread flour is distinctly different than the flour that we grow here, the wheat that we grow here in Michigan. There's two essential wheats. We have white wheat and red wheat. And the white wheat that we predominantly grow, grow in this area and mill is for things like raisin bran, mini wheats, uh, all bran, and it has everything to do with the pigmentation and the wheat kernel. But that's so it, it's a very niche market. So we we were nationally we're the 14th largest milling company, but in the soft wheats we're we're much larger than that. And in white wheat milling, where you really get into specific, we're probably arguably the largest white wheat miller in the country. But it's for these niche products, these cereal products and food products. So the other parts, things that we use for our cakes, pies, cookies, crackers. We've, we've got a mill, our newest mill has, came online three years ago in Willard, Ohio. And there we, we literally bowled onto the Pepperidge Farms Goldfish Factory. So freight is a pipe across the parking lot to, to 22 lanes of goldfish production and cookies and everything else. Oh, that's hilarious. Your product's going directly into the little the Pepperidge Farm goldfish? It goes directly. So the, the, the time from when it's milled to goes into a product there is it's a 24-7 operation. And right. It's going very quickly. Wow. What If you can share this, what are some of the other products that are out there? Like if I was to go to the grocery store right now and you and I were to take a walk down, let's say, the, the cereal aisle or the cookie aisle or whatever that is, what products? We... we 
essentially work with all of all of the primary cereal companies you would like your Kellogg's, average, Kellogg's, Post, General Mills. Then there's companies that do generic products, which would be your Walmart, Kroger, Meyer. Those those are generic brands as well. But we we do crackers as well. In but donut flour. A lot of your. I mean, we have so we have customers that work really towards the school business, commissaries, restaurants, those that business was a little bit soft as a recent. But then we also, we're probably the single largest supplier of ice cream cone flour in the nation. So we work with companies and Joy Cone is a large buyer that people would be familiar with, as well as many of the companies that Blue Bunny Ice Cream is another one that would, they would use it not for the ice cream, but for the cone, the wafers, the the various confection type products. Licorice is also a large user of flour. So most of us don't think about licorice, but but if some of the, the red vines and the, the the old black vine licorice and then some of the sour licorice, that's mostly made up of flour. Well, it's interesting you say that because I never knew that. I thought candy was mostly made of sugar. <laughs> well, there's a lot of sugar in there as well. Oh, that's excellent, excellent. With with the company being as old as it is and the rich history that's behind it, the influence that you've had on the local community, and I have to ask this question, when, when you assumed the president role here at the company, what was it like taking on not only the responsibility of the company, but all of the, the history, especially the brand behind it? Yeah, that, there's been a lot of reflection on that. You know, thinking about that and the history and knowing the organization's been here this this long. And you, and you realize the families that are working here and the importance of keeping our organization financially strong and healthy because of the families that rely on it. it it's a different responsibility than I'd really thought about prior to. And, and the importance of making sure that our employees and their families are in, are in good shape as well as not just health-wise, but financially and, and so that they want to have their families and maybe some of their families will be employees here down the road as well. We have, a, if, if we ever adopted a no nepotism policy here, we'd be in trouble because we have a lot of family, much family, I mean, husband, wives, brothers, cousins that all are employed here. So when you were talking before about the family aspect of culture, we're literally, we're re- literally all related one way or another. So that's excellent. That's excellent. The, one of the questions that I do want to ask is, and I know we spent a lot of time talking about the history. What are some of your thoughts? What is your, you know, what is your vision as far as Star, Star of the West going forward? Well, the world, as we all have learned, is not always fair. So you, you have to continue to move forward. You have to improve your efficiencies, your technologies. And there's an economy of scale. We have a lot of new people in our organization, jobs. So we have a one individual, these wouldn't have occurred. When this company was founded, we didn't have marketing people as such. We had people that sell flour, but, but we have people that are in, responsible for purchasing grains from farmers and, and other elevators. We have marketing of the product, but then you get into, we have a food, we have a group of people in the food technical area, that, and they focus on food safety, food quality, ISO programs to make sure every product that a consumer picks off the store shelf is very safe and, and there's no issues there. That's very important. You know, you, things that we have to 
concern ourselves with A, and, and you'll see this, there will be food recalls. So their sole responsibility is to make sure everything that goes, every product that leaves this place is uh, free of any defects of any kind. We also then have people that are in charge of occupational safety and security. Uh, security day, when I came to work here, all the buildings were open. You could go anywhere you wanted. Today, you to come into the office, you got a locked door. To go into our mills and our facilities, they're under tight security. There's cameras just to ward off potential problems. Again, we it's all in consumers to, to protect our consumers because we don't want issues there. Then we also have a more recent addition as we have a director of sustainability. And you'll say, what is that? So the consumers are, are very educated more on their foods. I think people, as they've been home, they've been studying what's on that box a little bit more. So we have people that are responsible that can show you when you pick up a box of our the product that came from our facilities, we can go back to actually the, the seed that produced it, the farmer that planted it, all the products, all the crop protection inputs that were added to it, uh, all the data that that go around there so the consumer can have confidence to say, okay, this was done in a sustainable manner. We, we focus on reduced carbon footprint. We, we The one things we look at all of our facilities, and we talk about energy early on, first it was to power the mill. Now we look at how we can add uh, renewable energies to our system. We, we're looking at wind and solar and adding those to our facilities as well to be a, a responsible neighbor. On our agronomy side, and I didn't talk too much about that, but we're, we're in the top, top or number 35 in the nation on crop protection and f fertility, plant food for the country. And we work with farmers on their farming operations. When we apply fertilizer to these farms today, we, we change fertilizer rates every meter, every, you know, every three foot about. And we, we can apply fertilizers more accurately on a, on a farmer's field than I can on my lawn at home. Wow. And we, we'll change. We, we only put on what's needed. We, we know we're, we're a peninsula. We're surrounded by water. We were one of the pioneers. That was one of the projects I started in my earlier career when I could see the technologies were coming and say, you know, if you go to the Chesapeake area, there's been a lot of pollution areas. People hear about the algae blooms in Lake Erie in Ohio, and there's a lot of those are thought to be runoffs and such, farmer, you know, fertilizers and such. So we, we've been very proactive for almost 25, 30 years now in adopting technologies. All of our field equipment that we have, which is totally different than our flour milling equipment, but there's this tie-in from the original seed, how that was produced, how that crop was grown, and that comes back ultimately to the consumer's, consumer stores. And, and, and the sustainability person kind of puts all these pieces together into a presentable mosaic so you can see the picture. And so we, we want to be responsible for the environment. Again, I come from a history of farmers. I own a farm that was originally cleared by my grandparents with, with stump pullers and mules and dynamite to, so you could farm it today after the logging era. And so those become very important to make sure those are for future generations to continue to, to grow crops and feed our nation. That's excellent. You take care of the earth and the earth will take care of you. Yeah, essentially, yeah. That's excellent. Jim, if, if people want to follow what it is that you're doing, and I know you talked before about, you know, you've got a marketing team in place, but if they if they want to follow what the Star of the, the West is doing or, you know, check it, check uh, check out information, maybe even learn more about the history, what's the best ways for them to do that? Well, probably we, we got a lot of tech-savvy people that 
take care of our, we have a Twitter page. We also have a staroftheWest.com website, but it'll take you to direct you to Facebook. And there's where the, we're better, I think our group is very good at keeping day-to-day updates on what's going on, both in the food and employee side and, and all of all aspects of what we do in, in the organization. And for our audience, I will have all those links in the show notes down below. Jim, it's been really cool having you on the podcast today. Well, thank you for stopping by. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind-the-scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com slash email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.